Over the many years it has been my privilege to record the exploits of my remarkable friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, it has sometimes been difficult to choose which of his many cases to set before my readers. Some are still too sensitive to recount, whilst others are too recent in the minds of the public. But in all our many adventures together, no case pushed my friend to such mental and physical extremes as that of the Abominable Bride. Two Gimmicks, a podcast about the high-concept, experimental, structure-breaking gimmick episodes of TV, from musicals to noirs to a Victorian ghost story. I'm Derek B. Gale, and who's with me today? I am Jessica Tingler, a longtime friend of Derek's and a longtime listener of all his variety of shows, and a longtime Sherlock Sherlockian. I've been with it from the beginning when this show started. Nice, nice. Now, hey, Jessica, if you could yes. use a Sherlock-style mind palace to go to any time period and solve a mystery, where and when would you go? Oh my gosh, what an excellent question. First of all, I don't know if I would have a mind palace. Sure. I feel like I would have a mind... like So, like, John on the show once described himself as having a mind bungalow, which I felt was pretty adorable. <laughs> But I think I would have a mind like shanty cottage kind of thing. <laughs> it was just you know, I just a crazy little place. But um, I think if I was going to go back in time and solve a mystery, I'd probably like the forties. Ooh, oh, like a noir kind of style mystery. Well, and like you know, I love um, like the like just the beauty of actual real history that never gets told, like the women at Bletchley Circle. Mm. And I love codes and puzzles. That would be really fun. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love that answer. That rules. <laughs> we are talking about the Sherlock special that occurred between series three and four. It's called in some places a Christmas special, even though it premiered on New Year's Day. Doesn't matter. Uh, it's entitled The Abominable Bride. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the show Sherlock, just a real quick rundown of it. Uh, it is a Br- British mystery crime series developed, uh, created by Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat aired on BBC one in the UK and PBS in the U S for four short series and one special from 2010 to 2017 uh, and adapts and modernizes Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes characters into the modern day. Well, kind of mixing and updating many of the original stories notable for starring Benedict Cumberbatch in what I think was probably his breakout role, at least like globally as Sherlock Holmes, uh, as lo- as well as, uh, the more probably at the time more known Martin Freeman as Dr. John Watson. It's notable for its like feature length episodes that typically run like 90 minutes. Uh, also notable, I think I would say for kind of popularizing the modern use of like representing texting on on screen with pop up visuals. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's used on film and TV to this day. Well, I remember it being kind of innovative at the time, feeling like I hadn't seen it at least a lot yeah. the way that they did it. Yeah. Um, whoever is the designer for that did an excellent job, especially when you, because you can tell where is like, this is such a weird nerd thing. You can tell where is the plane that the writing is on. 
Like you can see that it's not just like flat to the the TV screen. It'll be like at an angle or, you know, like a, like an invisible plane from the projection of the phone or whatever it is that they're typing on. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, cause it, it, like they would do that. And there's also like a pretty heavy use of just effects, like effects, heavy detectiving visual aids, whenever Holmes has his like thoughts and stuff. And even those, yeah, you'll sometimes see them like reflected in mirrors and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely like really innovative for the time. It's been used a lot in sort of detective and detective adjacent shows. I think to the point now that probably if people are rev- are like watching Sherlock for the first time now, it's probably going to feel kind of dated even because it's been used so much, but uh but certainly pretty innovative at the t- innovative at the time. Hugely successful internationally. I think it was like the UK's most watched drama series during the third series. Won a ton of Emmys. Uh, it was one of the big three Tumblr fandoms in the 2010s. Oh, yeah. Super Hulak. <laughs> oh yeah, I would pick. <laughs> so it's it's got even though even though it Super doesn't. Super Hulak is what everybody calls yeah. it. Supernatural, Doctor Who, and Sherlock. Uh huh. Oh, I remember. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's definitely definitely left its mark left its mark on pop culture. Um, so with all that said, Jessica, what's your personal history with Sherlock? Well, like I said at the intro, I've been with the show since the beginning, like since it pretty much aired on PBS uh, in 2010. I was in college, um, and we just were I, I don't know, just enamored with it all of a sudden. And it was around the time too. I think Robert Downey Jr. had already done one of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. movies, and so the character was kind of getting a resurgence. But this was such an interesting take, and um, we just fell in love with the obvious dedication to the source material that you could see in every tiny little detail. All of these things that had been you know, made to recreate or represent the original Doyle canon um, down to like in the pilot, Sherlock has just like a pocket knife and he like gets some mail and jams it into the mantle with the pocket knife, which is like direct from Arthur Conan Doyle that he keeps his mail trapped on the mantle place with a jackknife. And so it's just like one thing after another that things are perfectly in place like they're supposed to be, but just modernized. Oh, cool. So the attention to detail like sucked me in yeah and then both these men are beautiful physically (laughs) and like emotionally they i and i'll never i don't know that i can think of a better actor than martin freeman honestly he's has such an incredible range he's great and he's kind of like the show is about sherlock but martin freeman is kind of the soul Mm -hmm. of it they are really like a heart and soul kind of like a mind and soul kind of pairing they just they're good (laughs) And you can't deny a a beautiful tension, like under like surface tension romance. That's it's just so there (laughs) for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool hearing you say that because I, you know, I I watched it when it came out because it was it was like immediately pretty. I, I guess it was big because. People knew who Stephen Moffat was over here. So if you were a Doctor Who fan, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's the other thing right. he's doing, right? And I think that's the that's the main reason that I, I I got into it. I think when the first series was airing here, um, but I I don't really have any much of any background with like classic Sherlock Holmes. Like I've seen plenty of adaptations. Like I saw the Guy Ritchie movies. I watched mm-hmm. I watched Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century, the cartoon in the in okay, <laughs> you know. So like. 
I have your your most basic basic casual you know um, understanding of yeah. Sherlock, but like I don't I don't know like like all the details that you just mentioned, all of that would be lost on me. I don't know any other references or anything. Um, so I was really just watching. Well, I have not read a majority of Arthur Conan Doyle stories. I started to enjoy the stories and the characters when I was a child because I had. Do you remember these great illustrated classic books? They're hardbacks with like a picture on every page. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and I had like two or three that were Sherlock Holmes or like a like one that was like a compendium, you know, like the Hounds of Baskerville. Mm-hmm. And um, so like I knew some of the stories, like the kids version, the Reader's Digest version that was simplified. Um, but I dove so deeply into this show that I learned way more about it because there's a ton of source material. I have not read it all. There's <laughs> a lot out there. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I get get into a fandom man <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah i uh and i i never i and i dug it just as you know it's like oh cool mystery show and if it's like an obvious reference like i know the game's afoot like in lines yeah. like that so if they reference that stuff i get it you know um but yeah. i do think that i definitely fell victim to like the really long hiatuses between seasons because oh, yeah. i i mean i i really dug the first two series and I'm pretty sure I watched the third one or at least maybe like the first couple episodes of it. But I have, I have way less memory of those than I do of the first two. And I think I was Mm -hmm. just kind of out of it by that point and I never finished it. So this episode that we're talking about, I'd never seen it until watching it for this podcast. I haven't seen anything that comes after it either. To tell you the truth, I didn't even know that there was a fourth series. I thought that the third series was the last one. So Now, some people, a lot of people are going to feel like it should have been the <laughs> end of it. Um, I disagree. Unpopular Sherlock opinion. I kind of like season four. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, but are you afraid of spoilers? No, not at all. I don't care. I'm probably never going to watch it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, then I'm here to just spoil everything. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Who are you? What do you do? What do you think? I'd say private detective. When the police are out of their depth, they consult me. Got anything? This is his hunting round, right here in the heart of the city. Why didn't I think of that? Because you're an idiot. This is my friend, John Watson. Friend? Colleague. That's how you get your kicks, isn't it? You risk your life to prove you're clever. Shut up. I'm saying you were thinking. It's annoying. You like the funny cases, don't you? The surprising ones. Obviously. The game, Mrs. Hudson, is on. Time to play. Sherlock Holmes and the address is 221B Baker Street. Sherlock, Sunday at 9 on BBC One. What is interesting about this special, and I mean, I was I was still excited to watch it. Um, for one, just to like dip back into Sherlock for the first time in years, but also because uh, this is the gimmick of this episode or this special. I'm going to call it an episode. It's a special, but it's an episode. Yeah. Whatever. They're all they're all movie length anyway. Oh yeah. <laughs> but the gimmick of it is essentially that like. Sherlock the show is a modernized adaptation of a Victorian story. So this special re-Victorianizes it, having the modern actors play their Victorian versions. Um, But the added wrinkle to it is that it's also sort of this reality bendy dream episode. It's also Mm -hmm. like seems to be a ghost story kind of thing at first. So like it's a very much an all bets are off type of thing. That's also like plenty of Sherlock Holmes fan service and also gets to be a period piece, but also still sort of plays into the larger, larger storyline of the modern show as well. Yeah, it it does. It has a place there with like, even though it's like, you know, basically a fever dream uh, episode. It 
it does serve a purpose. And it wasn't until after, honestly, after season four and then rewatching it for who knows how many times Mm -hmm. that I realized everything that this episode kind of set up going Mm. in season four, it set up a lot of stuff. Okay. That's good to know. But it was kind of fun. Like you say, to see that like the modern actors playing the Victorian cells, because it reminds me a lot of Robert Downey Jr. In Tropic Thunder. Uh, you're like, he's like playing a white man, playing a black man playing like, and it's like this whole, all these layers where he's just back and forth acting and acting into a mirror. Yeah. And that was like, so it kind of gets like that a little bit with Sherlock where they're not just doing a straight Victorian Sherlock Holmes interpretation. They're doing a Victorian interpretation of BBC Sherlock. That's yeah. That's a really, yeah. That's a smart yeah. way to put it. Yep. <laughs> the layers are. So, yeah. Layers. <laughs> so so yeah so like the, like i said the special kind of bridges the gap between series three and four um if if you if you're listening to this and like hadn't watched the show series three long story short in the most simplest of terms it, it terms it ends with like the seemingly sherlock's arch nemesis the thought to be dead moriarty is apparently potentially back from the dead via like these videos that are playing all over london um and sherlock who'd just been like exiled essentially out of the uk long story he's being recalled back to investigate it like five minutes after he was leaving in the first place so that's where we're that's where the special that's where the special sort of is placed in the timeline um although we don't really get back to that until about midway through the uh the special I think it's sort of interesting, just some some quotes from a behind the scenes feature that you can get uh, on Amazon Prime. And, and I'm assuming it's also on like the DVD and Blu-ray as well. Um, but there's some making of specials. Mm-hmm. And so there's just some quotes that I uh, from um, from Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat both talking about it. Uh, Gatiss has said, you know, although obviously we worked hard to establish, you know, a contemporary Sherlock, we still had always wanted to return him to his original world when the time was right, even if only for a while. Um, and Moffat had added, uh, there are things to say say about our series uh that can only be said by putting them back into the victorian world um so it sounds like this is something that like even from the beginning they figured like we'll probably do a victorian episode at some point because why not right like they had always kind of had that planned yeah. out yeah yeah and they're an interesting team honestly and and like because you mentioned like that you had started watching sherlock because of your relationship with stephen moffat mm-hmm through Doctor Who. And that was actually one of the things that caused me to hesitate the most about getting into Sherlock. I did not love Stephen Moffat as a showrunner on Doctor Who. Um, I thought that he was an excellent writer, right? Like his episodes, the ones that he wrote for Doctor Who were the best standalone episodes, but they were standalones. And the thing that I love so much about Doctor Who is that it had a really great overarching plot. And so I was like, I don't know if he, like, if I'm going to be into this, I'm into a story, right? I'm not into a one-off situation. And I do love though that, and it might be because of a balance with Mark Gaddis that they do tell a long story. There's like a long con, you know, over season to season that, that I really love because it keeps me going back episode to episode. Yeah. Yeah. You know? when they all connect to each other. But everyone has their preferences. A lot of people like episodic television. It's not my jam. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, that totally that totally checks out. They also said like they they thought it was felt like it was kind of a good opportunity 
to maybe like even re-engage with Doyle's classic stories. Mm-hmm. Cause like it's like one of the examples that Gatiss used in that behind the scenes uh, feature was that like the using this for the kind of the canonical first meeting between Sherlock and Watson from Doyle's books was very intentional because they felt like that was something that was very rarely portrayed in the classical way from the beginning in most adaptations. So mm-hmm. it was sort of a fun opportunity to do it with their versions of the characters. Yeah. Well, and what the quote that you pulled from this, the behind the scenes thing from Stephen Moffat about our show has things to say that like our best like in, put interpreted through like the Victorian lens to paraphrase very badly <laughs> um, to me <laughs> that it hits me straight at like one of my biggest issues with this show is what I feel is very obvious queer baiting sure. throughout the entire thing. And I think that that kind of comes into play honestly with the Victorian episode because of the restrictions of the society they're putting these characters in. Mm-hmm. That I feel like the that goes together, the things that can't be said, which is a really big theme with Sherlock and John and here their relationship, and that it almost makes more sense mm-hmm. in Victorian England that these things go unsaid. Yeah, that makes sense. I even though I was never particularly tapped into um, Sherlock discourse, I was mm-hmm. still on Tumblr in 2010. <laughs> right. So, so I knew about those conversations. Oh yeah. For, for sure. And that's the other thing too, that I think, and I'll be interested to hear your take on it as we kind of go through the episode. But like one of the other things they say about it is like one of those things that is a thing that they can really only be said in the Victorian world is sort of like how this show deals with female characters. Right. Because, you know, like, I think that that's, I think that there's always been a conversation with, with, with Moffat's writing of women, like can often be very hit or miss in different ways. And like in, in this one, they were interviewing Amanda Abington who plays Mary Watson. And like, one of the things that they, you know, was a big important point of emphasis was like contrasting how, uh, how John and Mary interact in the present day versus how they interact, like their Victorian versions interact where like she's kind of forced to be more subservient to him, even though she's still kind of still awesome, you know, even in, even in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. And like one of the quotes she says, like she still she has to be slightly more subservient, but I I didn't want her to feel repressed. Then she says, uh, when you take those corsets off literally and figuratively, you realize just how far we've come and also how much you've had for lunch. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. It's, it is fun. It's yeah. it's still interesting how this show ends up sort of like using women empowerment in the Victorian era for its mystery and stuff, but I, we can kind of get to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and just as an interesting side note, like if you didn't know this or some of your listeners don't know, um, Amanda Abington is actually Martin Freeman's ex-wife. Really? Yes. And they were already uh, d- divorced when they filmed this episode when she joined the Sherlock cast. Um, But they had remained pretty good friends. Um, And so I think it was like at his suggestion that she joined the show to play Mary and they have an obvious chemistry together. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is the mother of his children. Um, They have two kids together. And so it was kind of an interesting uh, little like tidbit because there are a lot of people online. like Well, and most people who just like don't like Mary Mm-hmm. And I don't love her, but I don't have like a deep seated hate for her. I think she, ha- I think she has a writing problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as a character, they certainly have made her more interesting than Arthur Conan Doyle certainly did, who just was like, 
Uh, and then Watson was married, and her name was Mary. And then she died, and he got married again, and her name was also Mary. And we're not going to talk about her anymore. And it was, it was like, to Doyle, she was very much a throwaway character. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to see her get built up a little bit more in the show. Um, and then, just as you say, interesting to see it be pulled back in the Victorian episode. Yeah. Cause she's like, if I'm remembering correctly, she's like a secret agent or an ex secret agent or assassin or something. Right. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yes. (laughs) The whole thing is crazy. Like when it comes out and you're like, I'm sorry. (laughs) What? (laughs) She's a spy. And like, uh, don't they work together? How like, it makes John seem very stupid. (laughs) Because they work in the same clinic. Like, why Why are you a dummy, John? But he's not. He just is blinded by love. Right. The stage is set. The curtain rises. We are ready to begin. You promised to keep him safe. You promised. Well, Holmes, surely you must have some theory. You all have a past, Watson. Ghosts. They're the shadows that defy now every sunny day. Every great cause has martyrs. Every war has suicide missions, and make no mistake, this is war. Why are you doing this? Tell me who you are! What made you like this? Oh, Watson. Nothing made me. I made me. Who are you? I demand you speak, who are you? The name is Sherlock Holmes, and the address is 221B Baker Street. Little use, us standing here in the dark. After all, this is the 19th century. I have to finish this. This one. Why? You're Sherlock Holmes. Wear the damn hat. This is just a funny thing because it's so typical of Stephen Moffat. Anyone who knows him of his stuff knows that he like during, especially during the Doctor Who days, and I think also probably with Sherlock too. Like he just loves to like lie to the press. So it was definitely like publicized when this episode was being talked about before it came out. It's like, oh no, it's its own thing. It's a separate entity on its own. It's in its own little bubble. Obviously, to kind of cover up for the fact that it absolutely isn't a separate entity in its own little bubble. It absolutely is in the continuity of the series, just in its own way. Right. Um, but you know, covering for the surprise, I'm, I'm not mad about that. And I do think too, like it the 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 episode pretty quickly gives you hints that it's not just an alternate reality situation. Mm-hmm. Like it's not very long before they start dropping modern phrases and stuff and break the reality of it. Um, so I, and I, I think that's handled just fine. So yeah. I will say this episode won a primetime Emmy for outstanding television movie, which was the first win in that category for this show. So uh, certainly got accolades. A lot of the reviews uh, seem to have been kind of mixed, like not necessarily like, negative or anything overall but more like kind of love it or hate it it seems like and and i I read a couple of like negative pieces just out of curiosity to see what people are saying at the time it really felt to me like it was it has less to do with this special in particular and more just sort of like general burnout with 
kind of the Stephen Moffat style of writing and like maybe where the show is going um, just because it had become so convoluted by this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I think it sort of comes from, because like there is one quote from a Vox article um, where Emily Vanderwerf uh, said, like, Moffat's protagonists have a tendency to become strange alien gods after a few seasons. They're the ones who figure out the puzzle every time. Sherlock Holmes is the smartest and the best. He is the only one who can save us. And like I kind of get that, like me watching this almost out of context, because this is the first time I've watched an episode in forever of this show. And I've never even seen this one. I, d- I didn't really get that because it's sort of like, oh, yeah, it's, this is just taking place in Sherlock Holmes's head and he's a smart detective solver. But I can sort of get if you've been watching this show from series one over the years, uh, it does. You could start to feel like, well, wait, so this entire special, we're only getting Sherlock's perspective. We're not even paying attention much to any of the other characters. You know, I kind of get that perspective, but I do sort of wonder if this is the kind of thing where if you didn't like it at the time, if you revisit it now, you might feel better about it just because there's been space between having been living in the show airing at the time, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Well, and one of the frustrations that I had and I said, you know, earlier with the queer baiting for the show, but you're absolutely right. Like how many times can you solve a mystery? And I still want to be here for this mm-hmm. without there being like, you know, like an overarching story. And in the first two series, that was Moriarty. And when they came into series three, um, they didn't introduce a big baddie right away. Mm-hmm. It was more, it was more episodic where they had a couple of different, villains um they had toby jones was one um who it always does a great job like no matter what he does he was <laughs> he did a good job mm-hmm. um but then with the introduction of this character charles magnuson who is uh, at the end of series three the reason that sherlock is in exile in the first place he killed magnuson um to protect mary to protect john um and so, you know, he ends up being essentially they're like, if we lock him up, it's going to be a problem. Uh, so let's just put him on like a suicide mission for the government. He won't come back. And then everybody's problems are solved. And the worst part is that Mycroft came up with that. His brother was like, we'll send him on a death mission uh, and then everyone's problems will be solved. <laughs> <laughs> what? What this family is so fucked up. Um, but it seemed to me as if they were trying to dupe, like replicate the Moriarty plot, which is difficult because Moriarty was an excellent villain and the way that he was played by Andrew Scott was just so perfect and manic in a way that was very like Joker like. Yeah. Really, you know, playful in a crazy way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and wonderful. They had a great chemistry. Um, as a as an ensemble, it seemed to me like the show needed to take more of a character path, like a character focused path, a character development path, and they and they didn't. They kept trying to. It was almost like trying to reclaim glory days. You know, you remember when we used to solve crimes together? It's like at some point you have to realize that you're forty. <laughs> you and like you're skinny, but no one can run like that. <laughs> Just all the time in a heavy ass coat. Like, slow down for a minute. 
<laughs> John has a baby. There's a whole, you know, right. their life is changing. And yet the show is trying to pretend like it's not. Right. That, that's all really interesting. And like, I agree. Andrew Scott's so good as Moriarty. He's so good in everything that he does. I love him in, in Fleabag as well. He's amazing in that show. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. And I like regret that I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, you'll, you won't regret it when, once you watch it. It's great. Both okay. seasons, both seasons are amazing. Okay. Um, but I, I do think that like that and that sort of context I think is actually kind of helpful because this episode does really feel like it's kind of the show itself trying to deal with like the literal ghost of Moriarty, like mm-hmm. the shadow of this character that sort of looms over the show that it's like, you're never, you're never going to be able to top him. Are we actually, should we bring him back? Maybe we should bring him back. Could we bring him back? And then eventually this show sort of, it kind of lands on, no, he's just dead for real. We've got to move on from this basically. Right. right. And they put themselves in a hard place, right? Like in a way they, they did they jump the shark too soon because they killed Moriarty after season two and continued the show. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you're like, it reminds me of, um, once upon a time where like <laughs> the first season was great, but then why the hell would you need a season two? Like the whole point was that charming and snow white weren't together anymore, Yep. but now they are like, why are we continuing with this show? Obviously, I watched all seven seasons and I have a lot of regrets. But <laughs> now that, you know, Moriarty's gone, you're stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place where, like, can we bring him back from the dead? What are we doing here? Or, like, yeah. is, are we just going to move on to a new villain? No one will ever top this. Like, there's really not a right answer mm-hmm. once they kill him. And I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot with that yeah. one. Or uh, in the head to make a really bad pun. <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, to to this episode's credit, I think it deals. It, it I do think it sort of confronts that question, um, in a way that I think is is a lot more satisfying to me, at least, than I than I kind of would have expected it to be. What whether it you know deals with it after the fact better or not, I don't know because I haven't seen beyond this episode. But mm-hmm. at this point, it's sort of like okay, I feel like you laid that to rest in an interesting way while still sort of carrying on a Moriarty legacy for the future potentially. But yeah, but. Yeah, so that's all I had for the background. So I think we can start talking about this episode in depth. you'd like to watch it along with us it didn't seem to be like really readily available for act streaming on a platform but it is available for like digital purchase in a few places and it is on i think dvd and blu-ray so um you can still certainly find it if you'd like to watch it yourself um and i found it on vimeo oh um, yeah because they because they recently took the entire sherlock series off of netflix which is why i haven't watched it in a minute mm-hmm. um but I, yeah, I found this episode on vimeo because i wanted to rewatch, and i don't have it on dvd <laughs> so there you go the synopsis for The Abominable Bride on IMDb is uh, really funny to me. It literally <laughs> is just Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson find themselves in 1890s London in this Christmas special. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> it makes it sound like they time travel, too. It does. Like, they're just walking around like, wow, what is that? <laughs> right. Look at that. Right. That's it. Also, Christmas special that originally aired on January 1st, 2016. Yeah. 
okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, BBC has been kind of fast and loose with the term Christmas special here lately. Because <laughs> I am a huge fan of another uh, show called Call the Midwife. And they do the same thing. Their Christmas special doesn't air until like New Year's. So but funny. it's still titled Christmas special. Like, okay, okay. It's also like when Simpsons Halloween specials would air in November sometimes. It's like, yeah. well, well. It's a season, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was written by the the series co-creators Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss. Um, they're both also known, like we said, for writing on Doctor Who. Uh, additionally, if if you're not familiar with Moffat, um, he was the showrunner for Doctor Who for series five through ten. He also wrote the screenplay for Steven Spielberg's Adventures of Tintin movie. Um, he's currently working on the Time Traveler's Wife TV series that I actually didn't realize was happening. So yeah, me either. That's interesting. Okay. Very curious to see how that goes yeah and in addition to writing tv uh Gatiss also frequently acts including with the league of gentlemen and as Tycho nestoris in game of thrones and as mycroft homes in this very series this special was directed by douglas mckinnon he's directed tons of british tv since the 90s including doctor who outlander and most recently good omens mm-hmm. so this uh this special i think it's kind of fun that like again i feel like going into it you're supposed to be expecting that it's going to just be an alternate timeline thing it still gives you a very long recap of like lots of major the major greatest hits of the show um although i don't know that it like is coherent if you haven't actually watched it all it's just a lot of random stuff in the recap yeah it's a very quick the recap is weird and then the intro of the show is a very like quick you know montage of their their greatest moments from season like season one right so, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, so, it, but uh, after we get kind of recap of like the modern day goes to alternatively in the 1880s, where we get this little prologue. The second Afghan war brought honors and promotion to many. But for me, it meant nothing but misfortune and disaster. I returned to England with my health irretrievably ruined and my future bleak. Under such circumstances, I naturally gravitated to London that great cesspool into which all the loungers and idlers of the empire are drained. A lot of this beginning part is narrated by Watson, first of all, which I think is kind of interesting, um, given that it takes place in Sherlock's head, we learn later. So it's funny that Sherlock is envisioning Watson's narration, but whatever. Uh (laughs) And and that's a form break in itself, that this show would have um, voiceover from Watson because it never has done that before. Right. Because is oh, this here's my my lack of knowledge for like the classic stories are they often narrated by watson in doyle stories or are they third person? Yeah. so in the so the doyle canon is actually that these stories have been written by john watson they're like his diaries and his publications after having met this ridiculous person sherlock holmes he decides to write them down he's keeping his journals and he publishes the stories and that kind of thing so there's kind of this whole side world where Watson is a published writer as well as uh, yeah, like a practicing medical doctor. Gotcha. Um, and so, and they like touched on that a little bit in this, in the abominable bride, because Watson like um, is talking to like the paper monger um, and they talk, like they joke about the illustrator a lot. And uh, the original Sherlock Holmes, like the short stories were published in the strand in the newspaper but yeah, it's the stories are all told from Watson's perspective. I think there might be like two or three exceptions that are told from Holmes's perspective. Gotcha. 
and it, yeah. it checks out because a lot of there's the there's a uh, you know he's yeah he's writing stories in this in the special and there's a, like a whole running gag of characters being like I never say anything do I according to you I just show people up the stairs and serve you breakfast well within the narrative that is broadly speaking your function my what don't feel singled out Mrs Hudson I'm hardly in the dog one the dog one. I'm your landlady, not a plot device. Do you mean the Hound of the Baskervilles? You make the room so drab and dingy. I'll blame it on the illustrator. He's out of control. You don't give me enough lines in your stories. Yeah. Am I going to be in the next one? <laughs> yeah, which is definitely what I would ask. <laughs> so where am I? Of course. I'm a very important person in your life, sir. <laughs> Bringing your paper every day. <laughs> well, I can tell you why I think this this particular episode had a voiceover from Watson. Sure. And because it takes place in Sherlock's head is uh, at the very end of the episode, not to jump too much. Mm -hmm. We discovered that Sherlock is having this particular dream because he's been reading John's blog, um, which is the modern adaptation of Watson publishing in the strand. He's been rereading like the day that they met right john's blog from his perspective from the very beginning of their relationship so in his dream he is also getting their story from john's perspective because mm. that's what he's been reading so in this really w- interesting way this episode is in sherlock's mind but it's i i think it's honestly it's what he thinks john sees him to be hmm. That's how he thinks John perceives him. That's really interesting. I mean, it checks out. Yeah. Cause a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of this Victorian stuff, you can like, there's other characters in it, the way they're portrayed. It's sort of like, Oh, well they only, they only seem like that because this is how Sherlock is seeing them in his head right, right. now. So that kind right. of, that's kind of a fun, a fun kind of like a uh, inception sort of thing where it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah like Sh- Sherlock <laughs> is seeing Watson, how Watson sees Sherlock in Sherlock's head. Cool. I love right. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So like th- this, this whole beginning really is, I mean, kind of more or less for fan service, but I think in a, in a fun way, because this is like, I was referencing earlier, this is like kind of the retelling of Watson and Sherlock's first meeting where Watson shows up, meets Sherlock, who's like beating corpses to see how long, bruising can happen after death yeah (laughs) and watson's like this guy seems very interesting let's (laughs) we're gonna live together now (laughs) Mm -hmm. dr watson mr sherlock excellent reflexes you'll do i'm sorry i have my own suite of rooms near regent's park between us we could afford them rooms who said anything about rooms i did a mention to stanford this morning i was indeed of a fellow lodger now he appears after lunch in the company of a man of military aspect with a tan and a recent injury both suggestive of the campaign in afghanistan and an enforced departure from it the conclusion seemed inescapable we'll finalize the details tomorrow evening now if you'll excuse me i have a hanging in wandsworth and i'd hate them to start without me the hanging i take a professional interest i also play the violin and smoke a pipe I presume that's not a problem. Uh, oh, well. And you're clearly acclimatized and never getting to the end of a sentence. We'll get along splendidly. And that brings us into uh, like the, the new version of the opening credits for the Victorian era, which is kind of fun that they did that. It's cute. Especially because London looks almost exactly the same. <laughs> yep. <It's> like, <laughs> Victorian London, modern London, very little difference. I think the, like the eye, the London eye, and what the building is called the Gherkin. <laughs> it's like 
shit. It's <laughs> hilarious. So we flash forward to kind of our main story to, in 1895. So this is after Watson has been uh, working with Holmes for a while. They've solved a bunch of cases. He's writing stories in the Strand, like we referenced. Uh, Martin Freeman has a beautiful handlebar mustache that I love to death. I do too. It's, it I looked, think it's it gorgeous. Looked, yep. It looks great on him. Yeah, it, it does. And like, it got a lot of hate. <laughs> um, and it, it was a joke from season three about him having grown this mustache after Sherlock died, like in obvious grief. Mm. Um, and that one was terrible. But his Victorian mustache is a thing of glory. Yeah. It's just a matter of how you style it, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so here, uh, the way this sort of mystery starts is that Inspector Lestrade arrives, kind of presents Holmes and Watson with a really really bizarre case of Amelia Riccoletti, who was like this bride who was causing a scene by just like firing a couple of revolvers in the street from a balcony, which was <laughs> like, wow. Um, and then she, you know, bitches be crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And then after, you know, she causes a scene and then shoots herself in front of people. So like, oh, okay, clearly she's dead. Really, Lestrade? A woman blows her own brains out in public and you need help identifying the guilty party. I feel Scotland Yard has reached a new low. That's not why I'm here. I surmised. What was her name? The bride? Emilia Riccoletti. Yesterday was her wedding anniversary. The police, of course, were called. And her body taken to the morgue. Standard procedure. Why are you telling us what may be presumed? Because of what happened next. And then somehow Mr. Riccoletti, her husband, uh, is confronted by Amelia after she's dead, like that later that night. So she should she should have literally been shot in the head, but she shows up and shoots him dead before disappearing into the fog, very spookily, showing off like her her head wound. So, uh, and this is all like witnessed by the, I guess, chauffeur, chauffeur or whoever. So there are witnesses to this very, very spooky, what seems to be ghost murder, essentially. (laughs) I do have questions about the driver who brought Amelia Riccoletti to confront her husband in the street. Mm. Um, because why would you put a woman who looked like that in your cab? (laughs) Like they, they never talk. They're, they're like, well, yeah, they confirmed her. Like her appearance was confirmed by her husband just seconds before he died. And then also the cab driver, he said it was her too. And I'm like, the cab driver didn't immediately t- call the cops. This white <laughs> woman's head is blown off. Right. He right. his cab. <laughs> like, I guess he just never saw the back of her head, but. Yes, I don't know. Sure. Lady in your wedding dress, that seems normal. <laughs> But obviously, Holmes is like, that's weird. I guess I'll take this case. (laughs) Yeah. Extraordinary. Impossible. Superb suicide of street theater murder by Corpse Lestrade. You're spoiling us. What's in your hat and coat? Where are we going? To the morgue. There's not a moment to lose, which one can so rarely say of a morgue. Uh, what imp- an important note from this scene is that we also see Mary and Watson uh, interact in this. Um, it's very clear in this one. We kind of referenced it that like in Victorian, in the Victorian version of of this, like they have sort of this um, divide between them because Watson's gone all the time. And Watson thinks that Mary's just kind of sitting at home waiting for him. Mm-hmm. But we learn that she is working for like for women's voting rights. Um, there's a funny little exchange when she like she mentions it. Lestrade's like, I'm part of a campaign, you know, oh, campaign votes for women. And you are you for or against? Get out. Right. Fuck you. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do like that little moment. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love 
throughout this episode this really weird way like um like I said before I freaking love Martin Freeman he's an unbelievable actor he behaves so strangely with Mary in this episode and like in the other series series three and four when he is with her they have like a comfortable rapport you can tell what he's thinking and feeling it's very he's very expressive and he's like very purposefully stiff so i believe everything he's doing is a choice yeah like martin freeman as an actor um but it's so he he speaks to her so strangely he doesn't like look at her directly he has like a weird body language with her and i and it's odd i but i think when you put on the sherlock glasses Mm -hmm. that were in sherlock's mind that that must be how sherlock views their relationship Hmm. that's because Sherlock doesn't know how to deal with people. So like, what do you even do with a, with a woman? Right. I don't, let's go solve a case, John. Don't even look at her anymore. That's weird. Don't, don't talk to her. <laughs> and I think that checks out because like, I, I noticed before I kind of really fully understood exactly what they were going for by the end with everything. Like yeah. Watson is a, a lot more of like a rich asshole in, in this. Yeah. Like he's like mean to his, he's very rude to his maid in one scene later. And I was like, I, I, this is very off putting to me. It like pays off because a lot of the point of this episode is sort of like the, you know, the the, the women's uh, rights people basically. So like it kind of pays off, but, and he's, and there's even like an exchange later when he's like, uh, with Mycroft when they're sort of talking about like all the things that Watson's afraid of. He's like, these enemies are everywhere, undetected. And unstoppable. Socialists? Not socialists, Doctor. No. Anarchists? No. The French? The suffragists? Is there any large body of people you're not concerned about? Dr. Watson is endlessly vigilant. Watson is just a dick and probably like racist and classist and everything, you know. He fits the bill of a Victorian gentleman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I also, it's kind of funny to note too that most of the time when he's being the least john and the most watson to sort of separate timelines Mm -hmm. is when sherlock or holmes is not there right so like when sherlock leaves the room watson becomes a two-dimensional character that he just is and like it reminds me too of this that episode of community where they're in the in the imaginary like the dreamatorium Mm -hmm. And pretending to be, and Abed's pretending to be Troy and Britta on a date. Yeah. And it's like not very well acted. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I'm like. If Sherlock is just filling in the blanks of what happens in the room when he's not there, then people are going to be awkward and stiff just like he is. Yeah. Oh, that's and like kind of dick. <laughs> and just. Ugh. That's... Like just, I I picture them always having awkward hands. <laughs> that's such a great comparison. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Thanks. So like we we kind of see the morgue um as and as uh, as Sherlock is kind of investigating all this, um and this is where we get to see Doctor Hooper, who in the modern in modern times is a woman. Like that's a change from the canon, right? Like original. Yeah. Dr. Hooper in the Doyle stories is a man. They gender swapped her for the modern era, but then they like do what at first appears to be a, a reverse gender swap. And it's just the actress playing a male version. But mm-hmm. then it's like, 
still flipped on its head because it actually turns like it's it's made very clear pretty quickly that no it actually in the canon is a woman dressed as a man because this is the only way that she could get a job doing what she wants to do essentially right which is interesting is one of the only anachronisms that i know of in this episode mm-hmm. um from i've done some research particularly like weirdly enough for a Sherlock fanfic that I was writing because I did that <laughs> a lot. Um, like looking into Victorian uh, burial practices, which is where we get most of our modern like ideas about death and the ceremony and the ritual of burial mm-hmm. that at the time it would have been highly inappropriate for a man to examine a dead woman's body really? that they're, were, yeah, that there were female undertakers for this sole purpose for like cleaning and changing and like undertaking women's bodies because it wouldn't be appropriate for a man to have his hands all over a naked woman. Right. So it's that like that was an interesting like it was an interesting take to make Molly be, you know, drag king Molly. Right. But weird also that she could have been a woman, like historically speaking. Yeah. Oh, that's fat. Like, yeah. Then it seems like the only reason that they do it at all is for a kind of the fan servicey. Like now, Doctor Hooper's a man, like in the original stories, but also not really. Right. But then also, you know, and then playing again into like how who the who the the how the mystery in the Victorian era kind of unfolds later on. I guess so. Like, I get why they did it, but it would have still been fun to just not have to do that too and be more historically accurate right for her to yeah well and it could it could be this could be giving the writers a bit more credit than than is not necessarily deserved here but then should be handed out um there are you know a whole group of people who really ship sherlock and molly Hmm. um they're wrong but (laughs) (laughs) like this is in to me i can see how like maybe changing molly into a male undertaker in this in this instance or a woman dresses a man would be because sherlock views her only as a colleague hmm. and that's that's my take on it other people are like no 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 no, he's in love with her she's the only one that cares for him blah blah blah, blah, blah. yeah no, you're wrong you're dumb you're wrong but um that's that's what i think anyway that he views her as a as a colleague which in some weird way like in a victorian era i guess makes her male yeah i mean then tank- yeah, I, I see. I see. Yeah, I see that logic there. Uh, the, I see the flawed logic that Sherlock would have in yeah. Victorian times that way. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And and he doesn't know everything. He's an idiot in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. For so sure. for him to be like, uh, yeah, and Molly, who's uh, just a colleague, an undertaker. Well, she can't be a she. It's 1895. So I guess I'll make her a he. Right. He didn't do in-depth enough research on Victorian era right, times. Right, right. He, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't go down the wormhole that I went down. <laughs> I now lo- I know how Victorians brush their teeth, but... <laughs> oh, I, I love that you did, because that stuff is fascinating. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, while they're there, the, the interesting mystery bits that we get, uh, it, it is all confirmed that this is Amelia Recoletti's body there that's in the morgue that they have for sure. It really is her positively identified. Um, and, and Holmes is just sort of confused about that. Mm-hmm. There's a really funny interaction where Watson's like, and she can't have been in two places at the same time, can she? No, Watson, one place is strictly the limit for the recently deceased. Holmes, could it have been twins? No. Why not? Because it's never twins. 
Amelia was not a twin, nor did she have any sisters. She had one older brother who died four years ago. Mm. Maybe it was a secret twin. A what? A secret twin? Hmm? You know, a twin that nobody knows about? This whole thing could have been planned. Since the moment of conception, how breathtakingly prescient of her. It is never twins, Watson. <laughs> right, secret twins. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I love it. What I love most about it, though, is that, like, Sherlock's criticizing, like, that doesn't make sense. It's never twins. They plotted this from conception. That doesn't make any sense. But then I'm right. like, that is kind of the plot of the prestige, but go off, I guess. <laughs> And the exact same thought. I was like, but hello, the prestige was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Sherlock doesn't watch, doesn't consume modern media. He wouldn't get No. But the 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 thing that's sort of interesting here is that this is our first real big clue into like what's actually going on. Bullet through the brain. Back of the head blown clean off. How could he survive? She, you mean? I'm sorry? Not he, she. Yes, yes, of course. You know, so obviously they're making the connection to Moriarty since he also shot himself in the head, right? So, right. yeah. But I, the, the, the easy explanation right here is that like, well, I guess she's really dead. It must be copycat crimes, whatever. Let's not really think about it. So it flashes forward sometime later after this, um, where Holmes's brother Mycroft refers a case to him, which is the case of Lady Carmichael's husband, Sir Eustace Carmichael, who received a threatening warning in the form of an envelope of orange pips, which I had to look up or apparently seeds at some reference yeah. to a classic Holmes story. Sure, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's... it's um... Yeah, the orange pips. I do believe it comes up in the um, the study in Scarlet in the first Holmes novel. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, which has a really weird like like here he talks about like the American connection. Did your husband ever spend time in America? Mm-hmm. Um, and the study in Scarlet has this really weird, just like flashback to Utah, oh. uh, to like a Brigham Young like Mormon camp thing, and I'm like did I lose some pages? What is happening here? Like, so I think Doyle has kind of a fascination with uh, America. Okay. At the time, the, the West. Sure. Okay. Um, the thing that was more interesting to me than the pips was that they also both see the specter of Amelia Riccoletti uh, right there, like in their yard. So um, yeah. they're both very freaked out about that. And that's sort of where the where this where this case takes them from there. A few interesting things. Uh, we do get a scene of Sherlock and Watson meeting with Mycroft, and he's in a it's Mark Gatiss in a in in a fat suit. You look well, sir. Really, I rather thought I looked enormous. Well, now you mention it, this level of consumption is incredibly injurious to your health. Your heart. No need to iron that score, Watson. No? There's only a large cavity where that organ should reside. It's a family trait. Oh, I wasn't being critical. If you continue like this, sir, I give you five years at the most. Five? We thought three, did we not, Sherlock? I'm still inclined to four. Not a bad fat suit. No, it does look good. Yeah, it looks realistic. It's just a weird choice. It's a weird choice. Well, and... And throughout the Sherlock BBC series, they constantly are like referring to, uh, alluding to apparently the fact that Mycroft used to be heavy. 
Mm-hmm. And so they just like Sherlock doesn't ever want him to forget that the way that Mycroft doesn't want Sherlock to forget that he's quote unquote the smart one. Yeah. yeah. And I think that Sherlock in this very little brother way is like, yeah, well, you used to be fat. Mm-hmm. And it just brings it up all the time. Um, but in the Doyle canon, uh, Mycroft is a like a corpulent person. Sure. He's a he's a large man. I think that the best interpretation here is that you, this is Sherlock's imagining of Minecraft, mm-hmm. and just I'm a mean little brother right now, and I'm gonna make him fat. That's what I want to do. Yeah. You're always fat to me. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I think I think that interpretation makes sense. I don't think it goes any deeper than that. It's yeah. It's still one of those things. Like, I, I I I went. I was looking in the in the behind the scenes feature to see if they talk about it because they do like go into like the prosthetics and stuff that they use. And obviously, it was you know the skilled makeup artists and prosthetic artists and stuff. You know, creating mm-hmm. the fat suit and everything. Um, but the only thing they really say about it is like Gatus was just like, yeah, I mean he's canonically heavier in Doyle's text, so we decided to go farther with it. And he said we are doing everything as it would have been. In 1895 and i'm like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> if that's the explanation yeah. but all right yeah i yeah i think it's because in his mind palace like mycroft cannot defend himself and yeah. sherlock's just like this is where i can be mean yeah. to you and it actually make a difference yeah yeah food in that scene looks great though <laughs> it does although a lot of british food is gross so don't be true. tricked true. Don't be tricked. There's icing on top of meat pies. That's nasty. (laughs) Good to know. Who thinks that's okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Holmes and Watson go and they stake out the Carmichael's house. Um, They also spot the ghostly looking bride, like appearing and disappearing in front of them. So it's like, oh, is this really going to be a ghost story? Is that what y'all are going with? Uh, They hear the sound of breaking glass. They hear screams. They come in and they find Sir Eustace stabbed to death. Um, So everyone's assuming, like, I guess the ghost is real and killed him, apparently. You really mustn't blame yourself, you know. No, you're quite right. I'm glad you're seeing sense. Watson is equally culpable. Between us, we've managed to botch this whole case. I gave an undertaking to protect that man. Now he's lying there with a dagger in his breast. In fact, you gave an undertaking to investigate his murder. In the confident expectation, I would not have to. Lestrade arrives and notices that there's like a note on the dagger that Eustace was stabbed with. And Holmes is like, wait, I I found the body and there wasn't a note there. Where did that come from? And the note simply says, miss me, which was a phrase used by the modern day James Moriarty, which definitely freaks Holmes way out. I love the whole little interaction that they have in the potting shed Mm -hmm. um, because you know, not to beat a dead horse. Everything that they do is, in my eyes, a cry for romance. Um, <laughs> these two men, like, love each other, so obviously it's not even funny. Um, but this little moment here in the potting shit, like, their knees are touching. They're just so cute. And Watson is doing, he's just, del- like, he can't help himself but to delve into Sherlock's inner workings. Marriage is not a subject upon which I dwell. Now, why not? What's the matter with you this evening? That watch that you're wearing, there's a photograph inside it. I glimpsed it once. I believe it is of Irene Adler. You didn't glimpse it. You waited till I'd fallen asleep and looked at it. Yes, I did. You seriously thought I wouldn't notice? Irene Adler. Formidable opponent, a remarkable adventure. A very nice photograph. Why are you talking like this? Why are you so determined to be alone? Are you quite well, Watson? Is it such a curious question? From a Viennese alienist, no. From a retired army surgeon, most certainly. Holmes, 
against absolutely no opposition whatsoever, I am your closest friend. I concede it. I am currently attempting to have a perfectly normal conversation with you. Please don't. Why do you need to be alone? Why don't you have any experience with women? Do you have any experience with anybody? What is your sexual history? And I'm like, now's not the time, John. (laughs) (laughs) But when you consider also that the whole thing's happening in Sherlock's mind, it's that he can't even stop thinking about it, about these interactions and these conversations with John. And, you know, maybe wishing that he had said something else. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. That's so that's yeah, that's an interesting interpretation because I did. I really like that scene, too. and, And I like that. It's like. They're just like friends who are actually talking to each other when it's, you know, when, when normally we're seeing them on cases and doing the work and solving mysteries. It's sort of like, no, they're right. just talking about themselves like friends should. And, you know, you, obviously you can add the romance on top of it as well. I think the writers would just be like, no, they're just friends. So, but I, yeah. I, either interpretation, it still is just nice to like see them talking on kind of a purely human level, almost in a way that like, Sherlock probably can't in real life as much like he, 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 I mean, he's still cagey even in the dream version, but like yeah. being able to like actually at least initiate these conversations uh, even in the context of like chasing a ghost. is Yeah. Well, and you know, it's almost like how, you know how everybody does this. They practice conversations and arguments when you're alone in the car. Yeah. That I think that that's kind of what Sherlock is doing here because notice. And when it's just the two of them, this is the most like John that Watson has behaved throughout this whole episode. He's trying to like, you know, open Sherlock up a little bit. He's speaking familiarly and he just is kind of being the close friend that Sherlock takes him for. Yeah. And so it's so interesting to see how, like I pointed out before how when Sherlock is not there, he's really two dimensional. And when Sherlock is there, he's a bit more, but when it's just the two of them, this is like the most well-rounded like you can see this insight into modern day John, yeah, in this little enclosed little bubble that they have in the potting shed. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of which, sense. which again I think is great acting choices out of Freeman especially, but uh, Cumberbatch as well. Like I think they just really probably talked it to death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, no matter what you know, anyone's misgivings might be about this show for a, you know, a variety of reasons. I do think that like Freeman and Cumberbatch always kill it. Like oh. they're great. They're always great. Oh yeah. So like Holmes was freaked out by the Moriarty thing. Uh, he meditates, um, probably also takes a bunch of drugs and has a vision of Moriarty, like kind of insulting him a bunch. Like it's a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. Or are you just pleased to see me? You didn't expect me to turn up at the scene of the crime, did you? Poor old Sir Eustace. He got what was coming to him. But you couldn't have killed him. Oh, so what? Doesn't matter. Stop it. Stop this. You don't care about Sir Eustace or the bride or any of it. There's only one thing in this whole business that you find interesting. I know what you're doing. The bride put a gun in her mouth and shot the back of her head off, and then she came back. Impossible. But she did it. And you need to know how. How? Don't you? It's tearing your world apart, not knowing. You're trying to stop me. To distract me, derail me. Because doesn't this remind you of another case? Hasn't this all happened before? 
There's nothing new under the sun. They just have a really fun, a really fun interaction. It's just kind of nice to see like Moriarty again in general, but it's, it's all just like Moriarty basically just insulting Holmes and making fun of him for not being able to solve this, this, uh, this incredibly like impossible mystery. There's even like a really trippy bit where like Moriarty does shoot himself in the head again, but he remains alive and he's like dead is the new sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, I love the Moriarty that is created inside Sherlock's mind. Um, Cause he appears some more in season four, this mm-hmm. like particular version of Moriarty that's kind of amped up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have obviously so many thoughts about Sherlock as a show and as a character, or I wouldn't be here, but I, I think that he is a really tragic character in a lot of ways. Uh. I think that he like he's not just an asshole. He's not just repressed. First, I do think he's on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, but I think that he has a lot of actual like trauma. Do you know that like in 2010 we wouldn't necessarily have been talking about, mm-hmm. but now like thanks to TikTok and like weirdly all these young people, like everybody's talking about their childhood trauma all over right. again, and like now more and more people have the language. I think we would talk about it differently Sherlock his relationship with people his relationship with his brother especially I think is really damaging um and then the way that he holds on to Moriarty I think is to prove himself in a lot of ways oh that's yeah that's really interesting I I I kind of I can sort of see that because any of any time I'd ever see like Sherlock discourse about Sherlock himself ever pop up. I, I feel like it usually was just from the perspective of like, is he on the spectrum or is he a sociopath or is this bad representation of people on the spectrum? And that's sort of like where yeah. it would stop, you know, which I think are, it are all perfectly valid conversations that needed to be had too. But yeah. I do think the trauma aspect of it, I agree. I don't feel like I ever saw people talking about that or if they did, it wasn't like a predominant, you know, conversation. Um, and that is a thing that is, that is a thing that everyone kind of talks about now. Everything is sort of seen through the lens of like, these characters are going through trauma. What's that going to do right. to them? You know? Right. Right. Well, and, and it's amazing how, as you change, like as a consumer and the world changes or whatever, that you look back on things totally differently, even fictional things, because they're the things that form you as a person. Right. I look back on how I treated 15 year old Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Like, why is he shouting so much? He's like, caps lock that whole book. Why are you being such a dick to everybody? Well, it's because he just witnessed somebody die. Like, what the? F- he's a child. Who's like, like uh, obviously, he's going through some shit and he's being gaslighted the whole time. Like, I get right. it now. But, you know, I didn't at the time. And I hate that I made light of it. He's a fictional character. But he's a foundational brick in my person. Sure. Do you know, like, and so I hate that I didn't get it then. Yeah. I get it now. Yeah. But it, it's, yeah, the way the perspective has, it, it matters. That's, yeah, that's all, that's all really interesting. And like, and if you're watching this in real time, this is obviously the moment where like the reality just sort of crumbles completely yeah. and it, and it shifts and it's fully revealed that like, yes, this is technically like a dream world from the present day. Um, more specifically, it's like, Sherlock in his mind palace, like 
on drugs <laughs> to enhance it. So it's like a very, uh, this is like his sort of mind palace, uh, him trying to like work through this old case while he is uh, on his plane trip back to the UK. So it's like taking place over like 10 minutes or whatever. And like uh, Mycroft, John and Mary go, go to the plane. This is all present day. Like I said, they kind of find frustrated Sherlock rambling about this unsolved Riccoletti case. I have to go back. What? Yeah, I was, I was nearly there. I nearly had it. What on earth are you talking about? Go back where? You didn't get very far. Riccoletti, it is a bumbleable wife. Don't you understand? No, of course we don't. You're not making any sense, Sherlock. It was a case, a famous one from 100 years ago. Lodged in my hard drive, she seemed to be dead, but then she came back. What, like Moriarty? Shot herself in the head, exactly like Moriarty. His explanation, like you could probably guess, is that he was trying to sort of use solving that case to help him solve the case of Moriarty's return, since they're both very similar. People got shot in the head and then seemingly came back to life, right? People also are like kind of berating about his drug use and everything, which I feel like is pretty common in this show. Um, but uh, it doesn't take very long before he falls right back into his Victorian dream world again. Yeah, they do a lot of um, not very good caretaking of of a recovering addict, like honestly. Yeah. And I think because he's really standoffish and he's so intelligent, I think that people around him really kind of underestimate what I feel is a very childish person, mm-hmm. um, that it, he's a recovering drug addict, but his like the show has never mentioned has he been to rehab, has he like had help of any kind, or are they just like he comes from like the upper class, right? Or they they just pretend that this isn't happening, right? Like you know, and for like John and Mary, both medical professionals, to just be like, snap out of it, you asshole. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's like they, they kind of have the assumption that like, well, you're smart enough to get why this is wrong. So you should get it. So we're not going right. to help you along. We're just going to yell at you because right. you're smart enough to get it. Come on. Cause you're smart enough to understand that this is wrong and bad and dangerous and it's hurting all of us. And I'm like, for a minute, this is a little selfish, <laughs> you, you know, Sherlock's a dick all the time. I get it. But he also maybe wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> People treated him differently. I don't know. There's not a lot of excuses for his behavior. Yeah. No, but I, I fully get it though. Yeah. Especially cause like, and especially cause again, through the trauma lens, like they should realize that like the whole Moriarty thing was a big deal for him. So mm-hmm. that is clearly him coming back would be a trigger to spiraling in some way, you know, and, right. and in, and in this case, it like weirdly still spirals in a positive way because he kind of has character growth or whatever. But they don't know that that's going to happen. So, well, and what? And I'm I'm actually really glad that you said a trigger that that Moriarty would be the thing to trigger him because he wasn't. And the thing that triggered Sherlock in this instance, he took all these drugs, and we find out at the end that he took enough to overdose. Mm. Um, which is saying a lot for someone who's been doing heroin and cocaine for a long time. Mm. Um, that he took enough drugs to overdose probably shortly before getting on the plane. Yeah. Which is right after he said goodbye to John. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about the timeline. Yeah. Right. Cause it's, it's that, only been a few minutes. Yeah. Right. So that he's on, you know, on the tarmac waiting for John and maybe like, just like, I don't know. Shut up. I think is usually Sherlock's method of choice. Um, John arrives and he's not quite lost it yet, but he's gonna, he's going off on a suicide mission for Mycroft and he's never going to see John again. Mm. And he gets on this plane and starts reading 
John's blog and reminiscing and just wishing things were different. And then Moriarty comes back. Ooh, yeah. It's like trauma on top of trauma. Right. Right. But the, the trigger here in this moment is, is totally different. It's not Moriarty that just piles on top of it. That's, Oh, I love. Yeah. I, I never would have, that never would have crossed my mind. I love that. That, that totally checks out. Well, and I, I have such a love in a weird way for just a really sad story. I don't know why. I love it. I love when there's angst and there's pain and there's like trauma in a story. I just love it. I don't love it in real life. Sure. But, but you know, I, I just like a, I like a dark horse. <laughs> for TV. sure. Yeah. For sure. To bring this stuff to the surface and bring the mood of your show down. No, it's cool. That is my job. Hey. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty dark show. It's so. a dark show. <laughs> it has some really good moments. Like we, we kind of breezed over the, uh, their moment in the Diogenes club. Um, but when they are doing, they're speaking sign language with Wilder. Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing. I'm glad you liked my potato. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I kind of want it on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good. Just like, yeah, yeah it's good. Just straight up, like almost like, ver- like vaudeville type of yeah. comedy. It's yeah, good. Vaudeville. That's an excellent way to describe that little moment there. Yeah. And then Martin Freeman with, or John and his little, sorry, what? <laughs> like in this absolute <laughs> silence moment, they're speaking sign language, just doesn't get it. What? I love it. It's great. I love it. So back in the Victorian reality or Victorian dream, um, Holmes can't escape people berating him for using drugs because he wakes up to that Victorian Watson also right. berating him for using drugs. <laughs> right. He receives a telegram from Mary. Uh, and, and basically the thing with Mary in the Victorian story is that she's been working with Mycroft who wanted someone else to sort of also – be kind of keeping an eye on on Holmes on on Sherlock as well. So she's kind of done her own investigating, and she actually finds pretty much the key to the solution of the mystery because she kind of finds uh, that Amelia has co-conspirators at this like desanctified church, and they're even there's just like this whole like what seems to be like a creepy like culty demonic uh, sort of thing going on like ritual yeah. type thing going on it definitely feels like somebody's gonna get sacrificed right so it's like it's still kind of fancy movie down there <laughs> <laughs> like ooh. Yeah. yeah it's 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 still fully engracing like is this a real ghost story horror movie thing and it's a dream so like all bets are off you know who knows how this is gonna go but they they kind of figure out the truth here because a lot of this this ritual stuff is really more for show i guess so essentially we're gonna try to explain this the best i can the <laughs> entire <laughs> the entire mystery here with amelia ricoletto was concocted by a secret like sect of the women's rights movement, um, which consists of like many women who appeared on the show before and includes Dr. Hooper and includes Watson's maid who we berated some other characters that we've seen before are there. Um, and so like Holmes explains that Amelia basically faked her death by shooting her second revolver. Cause she was holding two, she was dual wielding. So she put one to her mouth, held another one to the ground or floor shot that one and then like acted like she was shot in the head while someone else splattered blood on the curtains to make it look like she shot herself to the public. They used a double to fake Amelia's corpse uh, so that her corpse would be found while Amelia could go and actually kill her husband, which would sort of create this persona of an avenging ghost bride. And she was able to pull off like 
her body being positively identified in the morgue because she does still end up dying, but because she was already dying of consumption, she was like, well, why not make my death count? I'll be a martyr. All that remained was to substitute the real Mrs. Rigoletti for the corpse in the morgue. This time, should anyone attempt to identify her, it would be positively, absolutely her. But why would she do that? Die to prove a point? Every great cause has martyrs. Every war has suicide missions, and make no mistake, this is war. One half of the human race at war with the other. The invisible army hovering at our elbows, tending to our homes, raising our children, ignored, patronized, disregarded, not allowed so much as a vote. She still got herself shot through the mouth, so then her the double's corpse could be swapped with her real corpse in the morgue so she'd be correctly identified, and then women could use this sort of legend of this avenging, avenging ghost bride to, like, use that persona to murder men who wronged them and then pin it on a ghost, essentially. Excellent. So... <laughs> that was an excellent summary. Because, the, like, the speed with which the show explains it, you're like, I what? I gotta go back. Yep. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's a lot. I mean... Pretty visually overwhelming while you're also uh, trying to hear it. Yep. And it's and it's also in the context of a dream that Sherlock's having in, in a Victorian world. So it's like, there's right. a lot of complicated layers going right. on here. And like, <laughs> in his dream, that like the, what's really funny is that the method is the whole reason he's having this dream, right? How could Moriarty still be alive? That's the whole point. But then in the dream, they're like, and, uh, blah, 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 and now she's actually really dead and don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> like they just kind of speed over it really quickly. Yep. Uh, even though that's the whole reason you went in, like, that's the whole reason that you, that you're taking this particular train of thought. Yep. It's a little wackadoo. <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. I mean, I guess by this point, it's part of the course for this show because they love their convoluted mystery solutions. Oh, yeah. Um, and like, yeah, so Sherlock is like, well, okay, so the probably the the sort of maybe head leader person in this and in, in who kind of strategized like what's happening right now is uh, Lady Carmichael. Um, but when he kind of goes to like unveil unveil the bride that's there, it's actually Moriarty. Is this silly enough for you yet? Gothic enough, mad enough, even for you? It doesn't make sense, Sherlock. Because it's not real. It's, it's all it's all dreamy and nightmarish and reality bendy again. What, what kind of what's your take on like the whole women's rights movement thing with this? Like and that being the sort of solution, because there is a little bit of like Sherlock sort of like being on a, a bit of a soapbox about it. Like look around you. This room is full of brides. Once she had risen, anyone could be her. The Avenging Ghost, a legend to strike terror into the heart of any man with malicious intent. A spectre to stalk those unpunished brutes whose reckoning is long overdue. A league of furies awakened. The women I, we, have lied to, betrayed. The women we have ignored and disparaged. Isn't this great that this has happened and we've got to let this happen kind of thing. Like clearly the show like is positive, is, is has a positive stance on like women should have rights, but it is still sort of, 
interesting to see like it's them saying that the women's right movement are like responsible for a bunch of murders and like faking a ghost and stuff. Well, and it's an odd take for a lot of reasons. It's it's like an odd um, solution for a lot of reasons because Sherlock, for one thing, like really lacks empathy. Mm-hmm. And so for him to just understand completely why all of these women who are shunned and overlooked are out here killing people is like a little beyond him because in, in the like previous episodes of the show, it's been, he's been like, I don't care what kind of good reason you have. Yeah. You that, And like, he doesn't even care really that you committed murder. He cares that you were an idiot enough to get caught. This is really his thing. It's like, how could you be so stupid? I figured right. this out in no time. Um, because he's just constantly proving himself to himself and other people and looking for praise. He looks like a puppy when he looks at John. Did I do good? <laughs> um, but, but what is interesting also, and I think that Sherlock's character is in keeping in this manner. Sherlock never underestimates people on the basis of sex. He has never done that in the show. He's never been like, oh, I don't know, it's just a girl. He's, you know, he's never thought that. Um, you know, it, it, like he doesn't do it either necessarily with age. Like he's non-discriminatory towards like children or old people. Like he doesn't have any problems with them because of any of these things, these reasons that society overlooks people. And that could be because as like a drug addict and like someone who's rude, Sherlock is the kind of person who gets pushed aside a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of reasons to push other people aside like that other people do. Not because you're a woman, not because you're old, not because you're black, not because you're fat. Like he doesn't do any of that. He's really right. discriminatory. Um, so it's interesting that in this episode he would be on a soapbox about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think his character is more like you're all idiots if you think that that's a reason to hate somebody. Yeah. It kind of felt like even when I was watching it, it was it kind of felt like a little more of like, oh, no, they're just using the character as a mouthpiece to, like, say where they stand on women's rights, which is like, I don't yeah. know if you needed to say that. I kind of assumed that a modern day person would be for women's voting rights. But sure. Thanks, I guess, for letting me right. know. <laughs> I had the same thought where I'm like, is this just is this just a loudspeaker for the showrunner for Moffat maybe because he's been criticized for his treatment of women. Right. Like, is this an opportunity for him to just say, no, 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 you guys should at least have the right to vote, you know, like just to kind <laughs> Thanks. of speak up a little, get a little positive press. Yeah. It, it definitely feels a little pat on the backy. Yeah. Way that's sort of weird. Cause like they could have even, they, cause it really is just like, they could have had all of the, like all of this, I think fits into like the time period and the story and everything. It really is just like Sherlock getting on a soapbox about it. That's like, just feels very out of place in, in it amongst yeah. everything else. Yeah. Because he's, he's not usually a lecturer on, especially on social issues. Right. That's not his jam. Right. And odd that he would be doing it in his own mind. Who is he talking to? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Who is he trying to make this point to? Yeah. Yep. Sure, a little weird. Should be nicer to people. Thanks, Sherlock. I'll try. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. So all that happens. <laughs> uh, reality crumbles again, and Sherlock's back in the present again, or so we think. Um, this is another little weird bit where, like, 
he he wakes up and he's like, I've got to find Amelia's grave to prove like what I figured out my mind palace is true because like both her and her body double should both be buried together. So like digs mm-hmm. up her coffin and there's only one body and he's really upset about it. The body starts talking to him and it's like, okay, so he's still dreaming again. This is like a whole other inception thing going You're on. Right. Cool. <laughs> oh no, I'm still asleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, personally, I felt like, that was just there to make the episode longer. I didn't need that entire sequence. It's like, just yeah. give me in one time period of that. We don't, we don't, this isn't, we don't need the whole mystery of what is a dream, what isn't reality yeah. thing going on here. I don't need that. And because honestly, I would have liked the moment better if it hadn't turned out to be a dream or even like the end of it wasn't a dream because mm-hmm. there's like a vague possibility that it started out as reality and then maybe Sherlock passed out and we, and the end part where the body is coming to life is the dream part. That he actually mm-hmm. did go try to exhume Amelia Recoletti's body, mm-hmm. and but that I would believe more, like in a in a character development sort of way, that Sherlock would be desperate enough to go do this, to go, yeah. uh, you know, unbury somebody from 150 years ago, just to see if he was right, <laughs> right, and to like and to put his own mind at rest, um, right. to prove himself to everyone around him but i can see that it would almost be more meaningful if the dream hadn't happened if he had gone and there's no body double it's just the one person and he just collapses in on himself yeah you know it would have been more more meaningful it would have been more moving i think i agree insight into sherlock the way he views himself yeah, because I was I was into I, I was I was I was into it at first when it's just like his sort of desperation, like he there was the desperation of like digging into his own brain for this hundred year old case to figure out this even more complicated case that's clearly going to be bothering him. And so the desperation of like going so far as to dig up a corpse, I think that that all checks out. And I think that that's really compelling to see like, he's just very on edge about all of this and sort of teetering on the edge, you know, yeah. but, and then, so it was sort of like, it almost just felt unnecessary to make that part of Marta dream really. Agreed. Agreed. But yeah, so, you know, he realizes it's all, he's also dreaming and then he like shifts right back again to Victorian era. Uh, in this case on the ledge next to the uh, Reichenbach falls with Moriarty, just like the classic Sherlock Holmes stories. Reichenbach is how you say it, right? I'm pronouncing that right. That's how I say it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean like this is, it's another, this is another thing that's like probably a fan service kind of thing, but it's so cool to see like you get uh, the classic Victorian Moriarty Sherlock Holmes fight at the falls. It's a whole, I mean, it's a whole thing. Like it's obviously meant to be cathartic cause like they get to fight each other. Moriarty's dead. Not in your mind. I'll never be dead there. You once called your brain a hard drive. Well say hello to the virus. This is how we end you and I. Always here, always together. Moriarty's kind of criticizing him because it's like you're all alone in this. Um, but then there's a there's a nice bit where Watson shows up mm-hmm. with a gun, uh, and he's like, "Nope, there's always two of us." Yeah, and uh, they get the upper hand on Moriarty. Yeah, and I love it, and I love too that this is like there are two moments I can think of in this particular episode: the waterfall being one, and then another when they're on the train up into the country, that are like. Uh, almost direct recreations of illustrations from the original home stories. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a nice visual homage to the illustrator that they all have such an issue with. <laughs> the, and so that, so that was kind of neat, but I love that 
<laughs> and I love that the explanation John provides is... Bus not fair, there's two of you. There's always two of us. Don't you read the strand? I'm a storyteller, I know when I'm in one. Of course. Of course you do, John. So what's he like? The other me, in the other place. Smarter than he looks. Pretty damn smart, then. Pretty damn smart. Ugh, why don't you two just elope, for God's sake? Yeah, I mean, I'm always here. <laughs> yeah. I'm always here. I'm always here. Because there's been a couple of other instances um, where, in Sherlock's mind, pal- John is just there. Like, being kind of a Jiminy Cricket. Hmm. You know, like, he is. he's always there. In, in John's and Sherlock's mind and just there to save the day there to be there for him um, but I like too that he's just like I, I'm a writer I think I know when I'm in a story yeah I love it yeah. I love it it's such a good it's such a good line it's so cute it's almost like yeah I knew this was fake the whole time are you stupid like, <laughs> <laughs> which is extra funny because he's like uh, you know a, he's still like a, a, a just like a piece of Sherlock's mind right now right but yeah it's it's cute. It's a cute little moment. Um, yeah. I like the weird kind of symmetry of of Sherlock jumping off the Reichenbach Falls and jumping off the building in the episode called the Reichenbach Falls. Like it's mm-hmm. a very it's this nice little even you know round circular thing that they do. Um, and an interesting way for him to come out of a drug induced dream coma, I guess. Yeah. 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 Because that's what he does. Yeah. yeah. Just jumps off a cliff and wakes up in back in the present, like f- for real this time. Yeah. Dr. Morgan tells him, why don't you two just get a room? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Priority's <laughs> <laughs> like, I see what the audience is seeing. I see what everyone on Tumblr is saying about you all. I, I think that that just... was pure fan service right there. Ugh, why don't you get a room already? <laughs> they just, like, yeah. They did address it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Not nearly correctly, but there they go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah, so like it turns out that the whole point of this is that Sherlock had all these dreams to come to the conclusion that Amelia Riccoletti died for real. It was all a ruse, and therefore Moriarty too really is dead for real. This this isn't a case where we're trying to figure out how he was brought back or something or how he faked his death. He really did die, and that was the point of it. Moriarty's alive, though. I never said he was alive. I said he was back. So he's dead? Of course he's dead. He blew his own brains out. No one survives that. I just went to the trouble of an overdose to prove it. Moriarty is dead. No question. But more importantly, I know exactly what he's going to do next. Really, the the real mystery is sort of like who's really trying to continue on his legacy. He did obviously arrange for people to carry out his plans afterwards. So there is always going to be the Moriarty shadow over things. But he himself is dead. It's a matter of figuring out who is carrying out his plans. Yes. And that's like I wish a direction that they had gone in more intentionally with the show after this point. Um, like the whole thing with Magnuson, I didn't really like because he wasn't connected to anything. He just came out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. But I do fully believe that Moriarty could continue to control a web of criminals from beyond the grave. Yeah. That he would think this far ahead and have people who are willing to do whatever he was doing. And the general sort of like fan understanding, the fanon, if you will, is mm-hmm. that 
the person who most naturally will take up Moriarty's mantle is uh, a man named Sebastian Moran, who is a character from the Arthur Conan Doyle canon and kind of like uh, Moriarty's like lieutenant. And so like he, he should be the one, the next big baddie, but still have with this shadow of Moriarty Mm -hmm. hovering over all of it. And like, I wish that that was the direction they had gone instead they kind of like went in a gas leak direction. Okay. For, for season four. That was yeah. weird. It is. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, not really knowing nothing of, of the next series. That's, I mean, that's the direction I assumed it was going to go in was just like, Oh, cool. I kind of, that's a smart way to kind of, keep Moriarty in the show and acknowledge like, again, like kind of the ghost of Moriarty and the shadow that he lays on the show by being such a good villain, Mm -hmm. even after you've killed him off. That's what I assumed was going to happen. Like it's a clear, clever way you can easily get Andrew Scott back in for fun videos or like dream sequences and stuff like that while still keeping the reality. They do utilize him a little bit, mostly in Sherlock's mind palace, but they have a flashback as well that features Moriarty while he's still alive. And Mm. so there's this, it's just it's crazy, and some of the some of the stuff from season four, like I said earlier, was set up in the Abominable Bride. All of this business about women that are overlooked, um, and mm. the sing song, like the the little tune that the bride is singing, um, and just this mystery, all of it with the gravestones and all this like visual symbolism, comes back in series four because we discover. That Sherlock has a sister gotcha. that has been essentially erased from his memory oh. because of a trauma. Wow. Right. Um, huh. It's a, it, I said gas leak for a reason. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. The way the series ends in, in the last episode of series four um, is wacky. His sister, her name is Eurus. And she's named for the East Wind, huh. like an ancient Greek, which is no weirder than Sherlock or Mycroft when you really get down yeah. to it. Um, but she is Sherlock's younger sister. So that makes Sherlock the middle child, um, which John very, very funnily was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> He's like, oh, OK, that falls into place. It turns out that. Where my and Mycroft does this whole explaining where he's like, So we all know that I'm the smart one, and Sherlock is pretty smart, also. But honestly, we thought you were stupid because you wouldn't talk to anybody for a long time. Um, and Yoris puts us both to shame with her insane intelligence, hmm. and that from a very young age, like three or four, she had like a uncanny intelligence, and you know just ability to read people the way Sherlock does as an adult, Mm -hmm. but also to manipulate people. And the big twist in the whole thing is that she killed Sherlock's childhood friend, Victor Trevor, then like got sent away. Like she, she was like an actual sociopath. She like killed animals. She killed a child um, and was sent away to live on some Island prison somewhere wow (laughs) and that's where she's grown up and then the last episode they go and visit her in this weird hannibal lecter style like cell and uh psych jokes on you i've trapped everybody in the prison and uh you're all gonna die at my hands now like she's friends with moriarty she knew him it was it just wow 
I, you, I can't even explain it in any kind of succinct way to anybody who hasn't seen it. Because it's insane. <laughs> Unhinged, like bananas. That is the word. Oh my gosh. And like the reason that I, <laughs> that I don't hate series four, even though like this is unhinged, it's unhinged, is because there's actually a lot of character development that happens. Mm. And that's what I like. That's what I wish had happened this whole time. Like there's a lot that goes on between John and Sherlock and their relationship and in that episode specifically. Huh. And then Sherlock and Mycroft do a lot of like healing together in that episode to the point that at one at one time in the episode you think like they're going to be forced to of the three of them sherlock mycroft and john are trapped in this room someone has to die Mm -hmm. mycroft says obviously you're going to choose dr watson go ahead and shoot me wow and it's like whoa like this is like insane insight yeah to their relationship like all three of them interacting together it's so heavy it's so much damn and like i kind of i don't like the insane elements that this secret sister just came out of nowhere right what (laughs) this man has a mind palace and yet he's been brainwashed to think he doesn't have a sister anymore (laughs) yeah but (laughs) but um like it just i it just builds and builds so much about how honestly i think mycroft is the uh like the the orchestrator of all of this the the pain that they all are going right. through and i think mike ross is a terrible person i love the way that mark gaddis portrays him i think he does an excellent job but i think he's a terrible person gotcha <laughs> yeah it just it's crazy and then there's also a theory online that all of series four is effectively a fever dream or at least the last episode uh, because john watson does get shot oh boy I mean, it's, yeah, and it sounds like a fever dream if there ever was one. So it certainly does. <laughs> it most certainly does. So and like, if they ever come back for a series five, who the hell knows where this is gonna go? Yeah, that's maybe Sherlock will turn out to have a secret twin. <laughs> you know what? I appreciate <laughs> the nice like callback from that. I would like that. Be funny, yeah. <laughs> but it's like. What else could possibly go? What else could possibly happen? Let's go full soap opera. Why not? (laughs) Right. Right. Given that there's no supernatural element at play here. Yeah. Right. What else is going to happen? Right. Oh, that's bananas. It's bananas. Yep. Yeah. Yes. The only other part of this episode that I honestly, I almost forgot about. There is like a cute little just tag at the end, essentially where it like flashes back to the Victorian homes and Watson. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of talking about like flying machines. These uh, telephone contraptions. What sort of lunatic fantasy is that? It was simply my conjecture of what a future world might look like and how you and I might fit inside it. From a drop of water, a logician should be able to infer the possibility of an Atlantic or a Niagara or a Reichenbach. Have you written up your account of the case? Yes. Modified to put it down as one of my rare failures, of course. Of course. They're playing it like we're writing the stories of modern day Sherlock and anticipating what the future will look like. Oh, right. what's a what's an aeroplane and a mobile telephone? Weird. Right. <laughs> it's all just it's cute. It's, it's yeah. a, nothing to it. It's just cute. <laughs> And that's exactly it. And that's like why I love time travel stories so much is for moments like that, where you have like the fish out of water element, mm-hmm. right? And people just looking around in awe, but that, that cuteness 
of them just sitting, shooting the shit, talking mm-hmm. about, you know, I had a crazy dream while I was hopped up on cocaine yesterday. Don't <laughs> tell me about it. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Yeah. You could only come up with that if you were on drugs, Holmes. That's insane. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh man. Well, this was really fun. Did you have any other, any other Sherlockian thoughts that, uh, that you wanted to bring up or anything we didn't get a chance to talk about before we close out? Um, I don't know. So the only, let's see, the only thing I jotted down, well, I jotted down two things. One is just a really random Disney reference because mm-hmm. I, that's what I do. But the, um, ghost illusion at the Carmichael's house Mm-hmm. Like that, that illusion has a name. It's called Pepper's Ghost. Oh yeah, yeah, and that is how they still to this day project the ghosts in the ballroom scene at the haunted mansion. Wow, Disneyland. Yeah, that's the that's how that is done. That's so cool. Yeah, so that's just a random thing that I know. Um, but also, in my in my research, my Victorian rabbit hole that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and this touches a little bit on the Arthur Conan Doyle canon. Watson like didn't care that Sherlock did drugs all the time. <laughs> he like literally didn't get, he's like, well, yeah, I came home and he was uh, laying on the couch. Uh, I think he had done some cocaine. Like he had a very specific 7% solution. It's a whole thing. Um, and, <laughs> but the reason he didn't care was cause, and I don't know if you knew this, but cocaine was so prevalent in Victorian England, especially in London. Yeah. Like, like there's like an opium den on every corner, which is, which is a drug relative of heroin. But mm. Uh, you could go to the pharmacy or the chemist in British English and buy cocaine tablets for your children for tooth pain. I did like, know over that the it, counter. That's why like, yeah, that's so wild. Like I did know that it was more prevalent at the time. I yeah. still didn't know exactly like how, you know, how like, I knew that there was like cocaine in certain foods and ingredients and stuff like that. Yep. Um, there's like, I mean, you can like Google it. There's like advertisements for like Dr. I don't like Dr. Beecham or something like cocaine lozenges. If you have a sore throat. (laughs) They're cherry flavored. (laughs) Like everywhere. Incredible. (laughs) So I love that they kept up with this modern sensibility about how drugs are bad Mm -hmm. because that's what, you know, it's all in Sherlock's mind. That's what everybody tells him. That's what John tells him all the time. Right. And he's kind of being a nag about it. And why is it, is it heroin or cocaine this time? <laughs> Sherlock wags finger. Incredible. And it's, I thought that was kind of cute, a, but it's just, yeah, that's just a historical fact that I love. Yeah, no, that's so, that's so fascinating. Uh, my kid won't go to sleep. Can you get the cocaine out of the cabinet? What a time to have been alive. <laughs> <laughs> and these people survived. Into- yeah. What the hell? Like we're we're bad pa- we're bad parents if we think about giving our daughter Benadryl because she won't go to sleep and it's totally safe. <laughs> yeah. Oh. If only we had had this kid two hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Top up on cocaine, it'll be fine. God, it would have been so much easier. She'd have some cocaine. I'd have some cocaine. We'd all have a great time. Everybody will just you know have consumption or whatever. But other than that, <laughs> but we with our special lozenges, no one will care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll be nice and pale and thin. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. This is a weird, (laughs) dark sense of humor I don't normally have. I love it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Does it to you. Yep. 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 Oh, boy. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This was so glad to have you on for this. I could not have done an episode on Sherlock without you, honestly. So, (laughs) Well, thank you for indulging me because I am like loving this 
show and all your other shows and was like, oh my gosh, I want to do one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, if anyone wants to find you like online or anything or anything you're working on, uh, is there anywhere that you would like to be found? Well, I, I'm on uh, TikTok, silly.mama. That's my handle. Okay, that's my daughter's name, Silly. And I don't make a lot. I have a lot of ambitions. I send myself a lot of TikToks that I intend to reply to and then I never do. <laughs> but I, I've made like nine. They're pretty good. Um, <laughs> so, so someone could follow me there. Um, I am on AO3, Archive of Our Own. This is relevant to this episode because I write Sherlock fanfic. Nice. And if I reveal my pseudonym here, it'd be the only place I've ever admitted to being this person. Your call. 100% your call. Mm. Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I'm on AO3 as Susan D. writes all one word. Uh, and it's short for Susan Diana Nim, Sue D. Nim. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. That's so clever. I love it. <laughs> That's where you can find my Sherlock fan fiction and that Victorian story that took me down a rabbit hole. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much again. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Derek B. Gale or on my other podcasts, Wahoo Web Snappers, a Spider-Man podcast, which does deep dives into every Spider-Man cartoon ever made, and also Falling with Style, an ongoing Pixar movie marathon, which is a monthly podcast that dives into every Pixar film chronologically. Jessica's been on an episode of that one as well. You can f- also follow this podcast at Gimmicks Pod on Twitter and Instagram for some extra goodies, and email me your questions, feedback, and corrections to gimmickspodcast at gmail.com please rate review and subscribe to this podcast on all podcast platforms and until next time friends keep being weird Go ahead.